Today's reading comes from Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 21. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with confidence and freedom. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the end of the reading. Good evening, everyone. I almost said good morning. I don't know what time of day it is. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is John Forsyth. I'm the vicar, or what's sometimes called a senior minister or pastor of St. Jude's, and I'm delighted to welcome you. If you are new, if you are visiting, if it's your first time at St. Jude's, we really do hope that you feel welcomed, uh, not just uh, by the staff, but really by uh, the fantastic people who make up our church. And one of the things we do at St. Jude's is look at God's Word, the Scriptures, the Bible, and we are in the middle of a series looking at Paul writing to a church in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. Uh, and sadly, last week, we were not able to gather in person due to that uh, crazy sudden lockdown. Uh, that was a down point. Uh, the, the really good thing was there was a fantastic sermon preached by Alex, one of our staff, last week. Uh, and if uh, on Ephesians 2 and I commend that sermon to you, if you missed it, it's on our website. It's an absolutely brilliant sermon outlining the beauty of God's gospel. The beauty of God's gospel. Well, this week, friends, we are moving from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Uh, and chapter 3, what, what Paul does in this chapter is outline some of the astonishing consequences of that gospel which he preaches to the church in chapter 2. The good news for God's church, for God's people, and for us. That is what we are looking at. And I realize that people learn in different ways. 
Uh, and sermons are very auditory for your auditory learners. That's great. But you might be a visual learner. Uh, and so I'm going to use some visual learning techniques, uh, just giving you a bit of a heads up. I'm not going to do any kinesthetic learning, which uh, is kind of movement. That, that would just be uh, awkward for me uh, and embarrassing for you. But we are going to see how we can use this building to help us think about God's word to us in chapter 3. I have three, there are three things I want to look at as we look at the second part particularly of this chapter together. And that is the first thing that we see as we go through is that God's church proclaims God's gospel. God's church proclaims his gospel. And we see that particularly, as you can see from uh, the little slide there, in verses 7 to 9. And like Paul as a church, we have this calling. Paul in the opening verses of chapter, sorry, in verses 7 to 8 of this chapter, is given both an identity and a mission. An identity. You see in verse 7, Paul declares this identity. He says, I became a servant, a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. In other words, the gospel, that gracious action, isn't just something that Paul receives. It also transforms who he is and gives him a new identity. And that identity is as a servant. He's received the gospel and now he serves that very gospel by God's grace. That's his identity in seven. But then we get to verse 8, we see that this gospel, this grace, also gives Paul a mission, a goal in life. And look what it says there in verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach, to proclaim good news, to announce this to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ. Just an interesting note there, Paul regards himself as less than the least of all the Lord's people. This is good news, friend. You can go home tonight, no matter how terrible you think you are, the worst Christian you think you are, guess what? The Apostle Paul is worse than you. Small amount of good news for you. But what's even more astonishing is that little phrase there, the boundless riches of Christ. It is such a wonderful and powerful and emotive phrase. The boundless riches of Christ. That is what we are to proclaim. And the language that Paul uses there is meant to draw our minds back actually to chapter 2, where he's used a very similar phrase before. In 2 verse 6, Paul writes that God, had, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace that is expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. See what Paul is saying there? He's saying with that language that the gospel... The good news that he's proclaimed and described in chapter 2 is the most important and precious treasure there is. 
It's the most important and precious treasure that you have. It is the most important and precious treasure that can be proclaimed to the world. You were dead. You were separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to the covenant of his promise, without hope and without God. But now, says Paul, through the death and resurrection of Christ, you have been brought near, near to God and near to each other. You are now alive. You are now forgiven. You now have a family in him. The boundless riches of Christ. This, friends, is the most important treasure there is. And notice how it's, it's, it's without bound. You, you can't bound it. There's no edge. It, it literally says the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is inscrutable. You can scrut them all you want, but you won't get to the end. Do you see what Paul's saying? He says, look, they're so vast, so huge, that it's beyond what we can, we we have no comparison. Now, why, why does Paul use that language? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, we tend to forget that this is the most important, and we're distracted by other things that, that glitter and shine and distract. And they may well be good things, but they're not unbounded things. They are not unsearchable things. They are not the most precious thing. And so Paul reminds us, look, there are many things that glitter, but this, friends, is the boundless riches of Christ. So don't chase after riches that are not boundless, that you can scrut. If you can scrut the riches, then they're not, they're not the right riches, Paul says. And secondly, because these riches are boundless, the wonderful news is no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, no matter how you've messed things up, no matter what your sin is, no matter how you have fallen short, no matter how you have failed, if, if you depile that up, that does not compare to the grace in Christ. Jesus is always there for us. The depths of his mercy and of his love and of his grace and of his forgiveness never run out. Here is your sin. Here is God's grace. It is no contest. His riches are boundless. And thirdly, these riches, they are so beautiful and precious, surely we can't help but tell other people about it. It's not just Paul's mission, friends. It is the mission that the Lord Jesus calls his church to from the start. We are a church that is saved by grace. And we are a church that proclaims God's grace. It is selfish to keep these riches to ourselves because they are boundless. We, friends, are to preach the boundless riches of Christ to the nations of this world. Now here's the bit for you visual learners. As you came in this church, you came in through a, a fantastic glass atrium. 
all that wonderful glass that, that sits around the outside of our building. And this glass says, we are not hidden from sight. We are not locked away. It says, come and look and see what we are doing as God's people. Come and be part of our community. Come and hear about the boundless riches of Christ. Each and every time you walk in and out of those glass doors, I want you to be reminded that our church is not to be shut off from our world. But indeed, we have a mission to our world, to our community. To look out and to preach the riches of Christ to the nations. And it's a great privilege because when you stand here as a preacher, the thing you see most actually is not the people in the church, which is great, but actually you look straight out the window and you're constantly distracted by people looking in, going, I wonder what's going in there. That looks very weird. It's the boundless riches of Christ. That is what we are called to do. And what do we see when we look out those windows? When we walk the streets of Carlton and of Parkville and of Fitzroy? Well, we see the nations. We don't actually have to go. The, the nations have come here. It's uber nations delivered to our doorstep. St. Jude's community, sorry, the community around St. Jude's is unsurprisingly full of students. In fact, my guess would be we have many students here tonight. The average age of Carlton is 24, considering the average age for our state is 37. That is a remarkable difference, and it makes me feel old, but it's true. And we don't just have people at university, we have many people who have graduated from university. It is full of university-educated professionals. And Carlton also has well above the national average of hipsters per square kilometre. <laughs> the skinny jeans capital, it's all here. But here are some other things that when you look around you go, of course. Less than 50% of people in our area were born in Australia. In other words, most people are from somewhere else. And of those less than 50% who were born in Australia, about half of them were born in a different state. So if you are from Melbourne, you're in the minority, 25%. 80% of people in our area will have at least one parent born overseas. Now, back in the 40s and 50s, Carlton was renowned particularly for having Italian and some Greek immigration, and that was a kind of little Italy of Melbourne. But now it is not little Italy, it is little Southeast Asia. At least 20% of people in Carlton have been born in China. And we have increasing numbers of people from Malaysia and Indonesia and India and Singapore and Sri Lanka and Africa. And here's the most amazing thing. The number one language spoken in Carlton is not English, it is Mandarin. Now, just as just a little show of hands, who here can speak Mandarin or understand Mandarin? Right? What a wonderful blessing we have to proclaim the riches of Christ to those who speak Mandarin. Okay, friends, can you see how this wonderful opportunity that the nations have come here, 
gives us such an obligation to share this news. To preach the boundless riches of Christ in a way that makes sense to those who have perhaps even never heard of him. As Paul says in verse 9, to make plain to everyone. And as we proclaim this gospel to the nations around us, we need to be very careful that we don't just make the, we don't make the truths about Jesus easier to believe by removing the bits that are awkward. That is what we call syncretism. That's a distortion of the riches of Christ. But instead, what we need to do is make the truths of the gospel of Christ easier to understand. That's contextualising. Uh, it is giving it with clear words and actions, showing people this is what the riches of Christ is. So when you walk through those glass entrances, may it prompt you to think about this mission. May it prompt you to pray for this mission, that we will make the gospel clear to everyone. For God's church proclaims his gospel, the boundless riches of Christ. Secondly, God's gospel displays his wisdom. God's gospel displays his wisdom. Here we're looking at verses 10 to 13. Now, one of the most important appliances in my house, and I'll probably say in your house too, is my fridge. Uh, my fridge performs a large number of important functions. There's a really obvious one, and that is keeping my drink and my food cold, or at least not rotting. It also stores a number of takeaway menus on the top. When there is no food inside it, it still serves that purpose, right? I can still get food. And underneath it, it's very good at collecting coins and dust. Three things, I would say, that most of our fridges do. But crucially... My fridge displays wisdom. It does. And I reckon that if you think about it, your fridge also displays wisdom, or it might. So let me explain to you what it means. Our fridge in our household manifests or displays wisdom because when somebody in our house, in our family, wins an award or does a particularly good artwork or gets a participation certificate, because that's all you need to do these days to get an award... What do we do? We stick it on the fridge. Behold the wisdom of turning up to this event. Behold the artistic ability of this person. Feast upon their magnificence as you enter our kitchen. See, our fridge displays wisdom. So here's the really astonishing truth as we look at verse 10. God seeks to display his wisdom through his church, through you and me, which seems to me to be a rather odd place to do it. I mean, we are not always the most impressive bunch of people. Once you get started on pastors, it's even more dangerous. Really? You're displaying your wisdom through your church? But that's what it says. Look at verse 10. 
His intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. What does Paul mean there? Well, I think one of the key words to pick out there is that word manifold. Now, that word manifold in the original language means many-coloured. It was a word that would be used to describe flowers or crowns or embroidered cloth or carpet. Things that had different colours and textures and were beautiful. Art, stained glass windows. And it's a spiritual declaration that we as a church are many-fold. We are many-coloured. That God's church is filled with people who are manifold. They are of different ages, different backgrounds, different cultures, different language, different genders, different abilities. Yet, one church... And none of those differing things make any lick of difference when it comes to Christ. None of those things make anybody more or less important in Christ's church. We all boldly approach God the same way, with freedom and confidence in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all God's people. We are all his church gathered to worship him. And notice too, look who is watching the manifold that it's being displayed to. (coughs) Now, through lockdown, we, we of course, broadcasted our service. And the idea was that that we wanted people to, to come, even though it was online, to gather and to hear God's word, to sing and to pray, and as best we can express fellowship. And our thought would be that we would be ministering primarily to people who are already members of St. Jude's or perhaps on the edges of St. Jude's. Now, that was, of course, our goal. But what we realised is that people had joined in from further afield, even in New South Wales, but also from overseas, from Singapore and from India and from Norway. Got an email from a young woman in Norway who'd been watching. That was not our intention, but that was the audience. And Paul says here that God's wisdom is made known not just at a local or even a global level. No, no, more importantly, at a cosmic level. It says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, it says there, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. Now, that is not a phrase that we often hear. What what, what is Paul talking about here? Well, he's actually mentioned this a little bit in chapter 1, but it's really when we get to chapter 6, particularly in verse 12, that Paul helps us understand the kind of biblical worldview. That is, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms is a way of saying the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms who oppose God. They had the kind of biblical worldview was this is the kind of the earthly where 
you know, us people, but the, the kind of spiritual realm sat above that. Now, it's not a, it's not a science view, it's, it's a theological view. And so the heavenly realms are the realms, particularly here, of those who are against God, the spiritual forces against him. But you can see the call here is that we are to show the wisdom of God by saying, guess what, you spiritual forces? God's church is working. The death of Christ is not in vain. It has reconciled us to God and, and it has reconciled us each to the other. The church has produced one new body, a manifold wisdom that has given us hope due to the immeasurable kindness of Christ. And so to display the wisdom of God is, to the cosmic powers is to live that out to be the church that Christ died to create. Or as my teenage uh, son would say, this is God flexing. This is God flexing. You want to see my plan for salvation at work? Check out the church. The church is the flag of victory planted in the field of battle that declares that God in his wisdom and love and grace has won and ultimately defeated those who would stand against him. Sin and death no longer have power. That is what the church says. That is how it declares the manifold wisdom of God. That is what we are doing right now which makes church feel a bit more exciting, doesn't it? You see, the church is not just to be a light to the world. In fact, it's a light to the cosmos. It's a declaration that Christ reigns supreme over all. Through God's church, he displays his manifold wisdom. Okay, visual learners out there, I know you've been hanging on. You've been putting up with all my words. Have a look around this church and look at the walls and what do you notice? There are manifold colours on the walls, right? You might think, I never noticed that before. Someone didn't notice that and they'd been in the church. I didn't notice there were colours on the wall. They were so enraptured by what was happening at the front. That's my hope anyway. Now, one thing I've noticed too is there actually are a manifold of opinions about what people think about the manifold colours on these walls, particularly when it was first done. But be that as it may, whatever your opinion is, what I want you to do is when you come to church and you see these colours, remember this verse. The manifold wisdom of God. It's expressed in the colours. One church... Many nations, many languages, many cultures, many tongues, male, female, old, young, married, single, divorced, God's people. Saved by grace to glorify God. Well, thirdly, God's church, we read here, is grounded in his love. And we see this particularly in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in verses 14 to 19. 
Now, there's a reason actually why Paul prays this prayer, and it's actually back in verse 13. So you've got to kind of sneak back one verse to understand why Paul is praying, because that's actually really important. And he's praying back in verse 13 that the church in Ephesus won't be discouraged. They won't be in despair, or as the King James Version puts it, they won't faint, won't fall over and collapse. Why? At Paul's suffering. There are some external things happening that has caused them to be anxious and worried and despairing. Nothing new under the sun. And what Paul is saying here, he says, look, when you face those things, those external pressures that cause discouragement or despair, or you you think you're going to faint, he says, the solution is not necessarily to, to look at the outside of those events, but really to ground who you are in the love of Christ. That is the core of how to respond. That is how the church grows. See, notice that as he prays, the first thing he says here is that to be grounded in the love of Christ results in our inner being being strengthened. He says in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he's reusing his material here, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. This church is discouraged. Paul is suffering. But Paul doesn't pray for the external thing to go away. Paul prays that they will find inner strength in the love of Christ. Because the temptation is, I think, that far too often we look at the circumstances of our life to determine whether God loves us. To determine how happy or fulfilled we're going to be. To give us our meaning. It's it's all those external events that we tend to place our hopes upon. See, all my problems would be solved if my outside circumstances had, had been resolved. If I can just pass that university degree or meet that person or have my illness fixed. But what, uh, what Paul's prayer, it's hard to say quickly, what Paul's prayer reminds us is that the key thing to praying in difficult times is not the circumstance, although that is still good to pray about, but even more importantly and crucially is that God will strengthen your inner being that you will rely on his love. Or it says there, so Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, when the Bible talks about your heart, uh, we tend to think about the heart primarily as the seat of our emotions, right? That's why our Valentine's Day, which was uh, last weekend, all about hearts, right? Little love hearts. It's about love and feeling happy. and that, That's not what, what Paul means. He means something far more than that. He means... Your true self. When the Bible speaks about your heart, it is who you truly are at the depths of your being. And he says, that is where Christ dwells. And if Christ dwells at the heart of who you are, then you will have the strength to face whatever is outside. And so Paul prays for the Ephesians. Yes, times will be tough. But Christ has you in his hands. 
And no circumstances can change that. And so find your strength in that. When I was at Bible College, we had a group of missionaries from overseas visit us, and they shared with us the extreme level of persecution that they faced in their home country. And they were shocking stories, violent stories, imprisonment, beatings. And I just started my training for ministry and I thought, oh my goodness, what have, what have I got myself into? And at the end of, of, of uh, them sharing, the, the person who was emceeing said, look, we obviously need to pray for you. We need to pray that this persecution stops. And I'll never forget what, what the, uh, the overseas uh, person said. They said, no, I don't do that. Pray that we would be strengthened to withstand it. The gospel is spreading like wildfire because of this person. Why do you want to stop that? Pray that we would remain faithful. That we would be grounded in the love of Christ. He understood exactly what what Paul is getting at here. See, what Paul is asking us to do here is to, to take the realities of the Christian life and to own them. To own them. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, you'll notice that as you go through the prayer, there are lots of mays in the prayer. You might not have noticed that initially. There are lots of mays, which implies that something will hopefully happen in the future. He says in verse 16 uh, that, that God may strengthen you with his power. And in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In 18, that you may have power. And in verse 19, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may, that you may, that you may. But the question is, look, as Christians, don't we actually already have these things? When you become a Christian, don't just get part of the Holy Spirit, you get the full Holy Spirit. Doesn't Christ doesn't kind of make a holiday house out of your heart? You know, he dwells in your heart. It's not visiting there every two weeks and coming back on weekends, no. We've already got the fullness of Christ. We've already got the Holy. Why does Paul use the word may? What Paul is saying is, yes, yes, you have those things, but but he prays that that they will experience the reality of what already exists. They will grasp hold of it more at a deeper level. That it will provide them with the strength to, to go on. To persevere. Uh, it's a bit like how a child comes to understand how much their parents love them. When a little child is born, a little, a little baby is born, she has no comprehension of the love that her parents have for her. As she grows older, she becomes more and more aware. Now, the, the amount of love the parents have doesn't change, but her experience of it does. It grows, doesn't it? And often, I would say, when you become a parent, you have a new insight into how much parents love children. It doesn't change the reality of love, but it does change how much you experience and understand it. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's not saying that somehow they didn't have the love of Christ sufficiently beforehand. No, he's saying, no, you've got it. I pray that you'll experience and that it will grow you. It's moving from a a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. 
See, you can know that humanity is sinful intellectually, but it's a very different thing when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your own sin. You can know intellectually that you are saved by grace and God loves you, but it's a very different thing to experience the joy of experiencing that in your heart. It it brings joy and love and celebration. It brings contentment and grace and mercy. It's taking those truths and it's working them through our lives. That's what Paul is praying. Not that these things will become true, not that they'll live them out. They'll become experiential, experiential. And it's all about Christ's love. Just, just look how often it's mentioned in his prayer. I pray that you being rooted and established in his love, in, in, in verse 17, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide his love is, how long his love is, how high his love is, how deep his love is. And in verse 19, that this love even surpasses knowledge. It's it's a love that surpasses knowledge. What does Paul mean by that? Well, friends, he's not saying check your brain in the door. Uh, Please don't do that. What he's saying is, look, if you want to know what it means to follow Christ... You have to meditate on the love of Christ. Let me me give you some examples. If you want to know how to deal with a sin that you're struggling with, what do you do? You meditate on the love of Christ. This is what Christ did to pay for my sin. You go to the cross. If you want to become more passionate about evangelism and sharing the wonderful manifold riches of grace with people, what do you do? You meditate on the love of Christ. You reflect on just how deep his love is for this world that he would send his son. If you want to know how to become less selfish, and better at loving other people, what do you do? You probably know the answer by now. You meditate on the love of Christ. How did Christ treat people? How does he see people? How does he see you? If you want to be more generous with your time and money, you want to know how to do that better, what do you do? You meditate on the love of Christ. So generous that he gave his life for you. If you want to be less anxious about your degree or your job or your health or your family, you meditate on the love of Christ. Can you see how how love surpasses knowledge? It's not saying we chuck our brains at at the door. It says, no, we we come each and every time to the love of Christ, which we find at the foot of the cross. Because Christ's love for you is love in every direction. It's boundless, as we've read. It's wide. It's for all people, everywhere. It is long. It is unending. It never forsakes. It never separates. It is deep. 
See, Christ did not just become human, but he died and he faced the full depth of God's judgment for you. That is how deep his love is for you. And it's high. Christ is raised up and we as his people are raised up with him. That is the height of Christ's love. And so you can see how how this love compels us to tell other people. And how this love makes manifest the glorious wisdom of God through his church. Let me give thanks to God for this immeasurable love. Our gracious Father, to you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.